Dotnet Rocks episode 862 with guests Anthony Vanderhorn and Nick Molnar. Recorded live Thursday, March 21st, 2013. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. And by Franklins.net, makers of GesturePack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at GesturePak.com. And by Diatom, developers of the .NET Rocks mobile app, available now for Windows Phone 7, iPhone, and Android phones. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl, it's Richard, it's .NETty goodness. We're sort of on this web uh, sprint right now, Richard. Well, yeah, it's been a sort of a transcendent time for web development in the .NET world, hasn't it? It, it, it really has. Sort of gathered up these shows, there's just so many cool stories to tell, and this is going to be another one. Well, the, that's where the cool stories are happening right now in the web space, you know? I, I don't disagree with you, but I know some good stuff going over on the smart client, the, the, the deployed client side, and I have some shows coming up. So if you've been feeling neglected, don't you worry. We'll take care of you. Yeah, we'll take care of you. Don't worry. This is .NET Rocks we're talking about. Yeah. All right. Hey, better know framework time. Awesome. Found a great website. Did you? A JavaScript beautifier. What? JSbeautifier.org. You copy and paste any nasty JavaScript in there. You press the button. Poof. Instantly formatted, perfectly beautified JavaScript. So it's like the opposite of the minifier. Yeah, it's the maxifier. <laughs> That's cool. Because let's face it, when you you know you view source these days, if you don't see you know a link to a JS file, yeah, it's pretty nasty. Even the linked ones are pretty nasty. I mean, people minify for a reason, right? That's right. They didn't mean for you to read it. No, was it for you? It was for a browser. Yeah, it was for the browser. So. There you go. That's awesome. Nothing. No more needs to be said. You drop your code in, you hit the button, beautiful things happen. Poof. That's the way I say it. JSbeautifier.org. <laughs> it. it should be called jspoof.org. <laughs> but it's, <laughs> it's jsbeautifier.org. No, I learned to love it. Hey, man, who's talking to us? Hey, I grabbed a comment off of show 853, and that's the one we did with Glenn Block when we talked about open source script CS. The excited Glenn Block was back. He's not all that much subdued anymore. No, no. And then I went back and listened. It's fun to record them, but it's another thing to go back and listen to him again. <laughs> but the way he steps in, as soon as you start telling his body, he goes, wait, 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 <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Hang on a second. <laughs> Within five seconds, you know Glenn Block is back. He's back. No longer subdued. You know what you're going to love about this comment? It's from Stuart Lodge. Yeah, Stuart Lodge. He's the guy who does MVVM Cross. Exactly. And so here's what Stuart says. I love this evolution. He's talking about CS Script. I'm an everyday user of Joseph Albahari's excellent LinkPad, which is another external tool that's very cool. I should probably mm -hmm. put a link up to that. It's just so simple to write some C-sharp and link code to test and tweak it. It takes seconds to write, and it gives you instant feedback. As someone who writes C-sharp on the client, the idea of writing C-sharp on the server as well is natural and perfect. It's nirvana. The Big Bang is going to happen any moment now. At some point, somewhere in Redmond, Josh on mobile services and Glenn on script CS are going to collide. Azure Mobile Services Sharp will be born and we'll all be flying. Oh! <laughs> I love the name. Adding strong typing and enabling code sharing across the client and the server is a big win. All those Node.js coders, 
They are so 2012. <laughs> awesome. That's great. Hilarious. Hey, Stuart, you rock, man. .NET Rocks mug on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NETrocks.com or on any of our mobile clients, iPhone, Android, and WinPhone. You can write comments right in there, and they'll appear in the same comments engine, and maybe you'll get a .NET Rocks mug, too. And those mobile apps were built by Diatom Enterprises, our friends that are building all kinds of mobile apps. If you'd like to get a mobile app, go to DiatomEnterprises.com. Mm-hmm. And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have hundreds of hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts, releasing 10 to 15 new courses every month and offering a free 10-day trial, giving you 200 minutes. Pluralsight offers a full curriculum on software practices, including Agile, Scrum, TFD, and a full library of design patterns. Try Pluralsight today. Subscriptions start at just $29 a month. And with that, let me introduce our guest. Anthony Vanderhorn is a co-founder of Glimpse and a regular speaker on such topics as open source, web practices, and diagnostics for the web. Since starting his careers, I love that. Since starting his multiple careers, Anthony has been specializing in web and front-end development with technologies such as JavaScript, CSS, and HTML. Anthony has spent the last two years living and working in New York City and is now back in his hometown of Brisbane, Australia. During his time in the Big Apple, he worked in the financial services sector. Gee, I wonder why he left. Hmm. Hmm. Developing high-frequency trading systems. In his spare time, Anthony can be caught out and about taking photos, speaking at conferences, and working on other open-source projects. Nick Molnar is a New Yorker, ASP insider, and co-founder of Glimpse, an open-source ASP.NET diagnostics and debugging tool. Originally from Florida, Nick specializes in web development, building scalable client-centric solutions. In his spare time, Nick can be found cooking up a storm in the kitchen, hanging with his wife, speaking at conferences, and working on other open source projects. Anthony, Nick, welcome. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you very much. So let's talk Glimpse. For those who don't know, give us the elevator pitch. Anthony, you go. Okay, I'll take this one. Okay, so basically Glimpse is a diagnostics platform for the web. Um, now, Basically, that's a really fancy term for saying that uh, we're kind of like Firebug, if you're used to using Firebug or other F12 tools, mm -hmm. where um, once you install Glimpse, you get a panel that shows up across the bottom of the page. And then inside of that panel, we can show you all sorts of uh, cool diagnostics information, either from the server uh, or on the client. An example of that might be uh, routing information. If you've got uh, MVC um, uh, in your particular application mm -hmm. or Knockout JS on the client uh, or even Entity Framework support, which we've got just coming around the corner. So pretty cool stuff. So the kind of stuff that you can see in the browser, we get that, but you go a little bit further and hook into server services? Yeah, server services. So most of the time, let's say you've got Firebug, that'll only show you what's on the client, i.e. what the DOM looks like or, um, you know, a, a JavaScript console or something like that. Whereas we can actually go in and because we're sitting on the server as well, we can profile all of the stuff that's happening on the server uh, from the beginning of the request to the end of the request, gather that all up and then send it down to the client, which will display all of that information. That's great. Yeah, typically we like to think about it as um, the 10,000 foot view of diagnostics. Sure. If you considered um, the one foot view to be like a breakpoint uh, inside of your application, um, when you shift up to the 10,000 foot view, what would you want to see? 
And we're able to say, well, in summary, this is everything that happened for your particular request. And then we can break that down to, you know, well, what would you want to see just for routes, which might be the 8,000 foot view. And then we can step down again to the 5,000 foot view all the way down to, uh, you know, what you'd uh, be uh, trying to pick up with like breakpoints. So pretty cool stuff. That is very cool. And uh, the first thing I think of is there's certainly got to be some authentication and authorization at work there. So you don't want everybody to just tap into your diagnostics data? Yeah, exactly. So out of the box, um, we find that uh, most of the people run it in development. And so obviously development isn't too much of an issue. And then if you shift into production with it, uh, we've got an authentication pipeline, uh, which means that you can lock it down. And that's pretty easy to add your own authenticators in there if you want to um, add in that uh, only developer, people who are logged in as developers can access it or, you know, whatever sort of authentication you want. So it's very, pretty easy. That's very cool. Hey, do I hear an IBIS in the background? <laughs> uh, I think you might. That's that's the uh, joys of living in uh, uh, Brisbane, Australia. Yeah, love it. Hey, uh, so... What what does it look like on the server side to implement the the kind of you know uh, the kind of entry points or service points that you might be wanting to look at? Well, it's really interesting. One of the fundamental design goals of Glimpse is that you shouldn't have to change your application's code at all in order to attach Glimpse and let Glimpse work. So for ninety nine percent of the cases, you actually don't change anything. You just install our NuGet package, which will make a couple of configuration changes to your web config file, and you're up and running. No changes necessary on the server-side code. So are you using sort of, uh, you know, the built-in diagnostics based in uh, .NET, you know, performance counters, that kind of thing? We're not, actually. So what we do, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll speak sp- particularly to the MVC uh, use case, we, we have packages that that have support for web forms and one for MVC. But MVC, we get much deeper diagnostics information because of the extensibility mechanisms built right into the framework. So what happens at App Startup is we use the decorator pattern to wrap up objects that the user has configured in MVC. So we might wrap up your view engines or your model binders. So that way we can see all the calls that the framework is making to your configured view engine. Let's say you're using Razor. Hmm. We see the call that comes into Razor and we see what Razor returned back to your application. And since we're kind of sitting in the middle, then we can just log all the diagnostics information that we want and then display it to the user later. Awesome. And the main thing here is you're just avoiding the developer have to do much to get this working in their system. Exactly. Exactly. And a lot of times when... When people run into a problem and they want to go and use Glimpse or they're learning about uh, whatever framework, NVC or Knockout, they don't even understand enough to know where to go and instrument their code. Right. So we, we want to just provide something that helps them right out of the box and that they don't really have to do anything. Well, and you've compared this to Firebug already. So it sounds like it's a dev tool. Is this really something I want to push out to production? That's a good question. It's a question that we get uh, quite often and and. We think that there's a lot of value in pushing it out to production. As Anthony mentioned before, you need to make sure that your security is locked down. Yeah. Um, we ship Glimpse in a hardened mode, meaning that it will only run on a local server. Uh, to start, you actually have to configure it to soften it to allow it to work in production. Mm-hmm. Um, so, But yeah, I, I think that there's definitely value there, particularly if you care about execution times, if you want to see how long things are running. 
you can start to keep track of the diagnostics that Glimpse is gathering and compare them over time to make sure that, you know, performance is going up or going down or see how, how complex your website has changed over time. Well, and I'm, I'm a big believer in the idea of instrument everybody. The question then is, how much impact does this have on performance and where does the data go if it's not being shown to the user? Sure. So we just launched 1.0 and we're about to go into a performance campaign to really drive on performance. So I don't have any hard numbers to share with you for performance. Anecdotally, we've been told by large .NET websites that they found that Glimpse added about two milliseconds of overhead to a standard request. Startup times uh, add a little bit more than that. And the place that the data is stored is extensible. So we have an interface that you can implement. We call it the iPersistence store. Okay. And by default, we ship with an in-memory circular ring buffer. So we store, I don't remember if the, if the default is 25 or 50 uh, actual requests. But essentially, once you hit that 51st one, we drop, we drop the old one and, and keep the new one. And so that works really well because we're in memory. Uh, wouldn't work so well if you were in a web farm scenario. In that case, you would just want to implement that interface and store the data in SQL Server on a file system, Redis, something like that. Uh, and just between you, me, and the wall, I wouldn't store it in SQL Server. I've been down that path. Yep. It's a lot of data very quickly. The features of SQL Server aren't important for most of what you want to do with it. It Leave it as log files, and we'll parse it with Hadoop or some other parsing tool for that. But really, it seems like something that you're going to use in development and in testing. And once you go into production, is something that you would take off? Or do you find that your clients like to leave it on? Yeah, I think that's an interesting case. Um, taking a step back, when we uh, kind of reflect on what Glimpse has become, it's really a framework-level diagnostics tool. Um, because when people write plugins for it, they're thinking about frameworks, whether it's their own application or, you know, entity framework or MVC or whatever it may be. Mm. Um, these plugins have insights into how is the framework supposed to be operating. Um, and I think this framework level insight is, is extremely powerful. Um, you know, and it, particularly when you start breaking down what might be a logical transaction and what physical things happen as a response to that. So you could imagine on Azure, you know, you do a logical transaction and that resulted in these five or 10 message bus uh, calls um, to trigger and, you know, access to storage or, you know, whatever else may happen. And so I think having insights into that, particularly when something goes, something's going wrong, is extremely powerful. Um, the other use case that we find that um, people tend to uh, want to use Glimpse in production for is that you can turn Glimpse on in a write-only mode. Um, and what that does is uh, for a user, let's say you're in a support scenario, someone's running into a problem where it's just not working. And so you could tell them, click on this button, and that would flag their request. And uh, Glimpse would turn on for their requests but they wouldn't be able to see anything. But in the background, Glimpse is collecting everything for their requests. A developer could come back, uh, log into the website, uh, be following that user in real time and seeing their request data coming in in real time and be able to see, hey, look, this is where the routing information is going wrong or model binding is, is um, not going right for us because they've got a Turkish culture is being passed through and that's affecting you know, how the binding information is being processed. And so it's those sorts of use cases that we find are particularly compelling rather than, you know, necessarily trying to track, you know, what's my CPU usage or whatever else. It's those logical 
transactions and, you know, that support case that we find is particularly compelling. Yes. You know, mowing through log files when a guy calls in with a tech support complaint or something to try and find his trail is really miserable. Miserable indeed. Exactly. I I love the idea of like having a button on the page that says, are you having a problem? And when you click it, Glimpse kicks in and and maybe one of these tech support website services comes on and you're actually doing it interactively with the guy at the time. Yeah. And it's pretty cool because you can, you'll actually, the developer will have the Glimpse panel open or uh, up and you'll actually be able to see them clicking on stuff in real time. And then you'll actually see all of these um, uh, log output or uh, displays uh, for it in real time. So you'll actually be seeing, you know, how their routes are being matched or how the model bindings happen as they're actually doing it. And so it's, it's, it's pretty freaky when you're actually watching it, but uh, to realize that this is happening in real time. Uh, the other use case of that works, that particular feature works really nicely for is mobile development. Because I remember when we were going live, um, Nick and I got really excited about responsive design and all this sort of stuff. And we could shrink the Glimpse UI down so it only took up a little bit at the bottom of your mobile phone. And then we're like, we took a step back and go, yeah, no, th- this is never going to work. And then what we realized is because <laughs> because we're collecting all of this um, information on the server and we're facilitating viewing these historical requests, we could have doing mobile development, the mobile collecting that information in uh, in a write-only capacity, and then the developer on his machine here seeing all of those requests come in in real time. And so, hence, being able to do the same thing with mobile development, which is a pretty interesting use case as well. You know, I love the idea of, like Richard said, you know, I'm having a problem button. But in reality, how many people are, when they have a problem, are going to stick around to push the button? It's a very interesting point. Um, most people who uh, are going to have a problem like that. They just go away. Yeah. Well, either one, they'll go away. Or two, let's say if you're in an internal scenario and you've got a blocker, which is actively stopping the person from, you know, um, uh, triggering a trade or something like that, they're going to come and tell you. <laughs> but again, I understand that's more in an internal scenario. In external scenario, you're right. Yeah. And I suppose I suppose you're right. Uh, it all depends on the website. If they're placing an order for something they could get at another website, they'll go to another website. But if they're, if they're in the middle of a stock trade, you know, at Ameritrade.com or something and something goes wrong and there's a button that says help, I think they'll push it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, and so in a public scenario where things are just going wrong, um, you know, I think we'd like to, uh, in the future, have a look at what we can do there. Uh, to try and provide some of these insights and be smart about, you know, when we could capture stuff and when we couldn't. Um, but at the moment, we're still at the stage of, hey, look, we're trying to see what information we can get out, trying to make it extremely useful and compelling, uh, primarily in the development uh, scenario, but also looking at these use cases in production that we can also be uh, provide a lot of value for and then extending that into the future. So I get the idea about all the grab you're doing on the server side about routing and the request information, session data, and so forth. Mm-hmm. What about on the yeah. client side? What can we capture uh, from the browser? Yeah, so you would have, as I mentioned before, once you start thinking about Glimpse as a framework-level diagnostics tool, you start thinking about, well, what frameworks could we collect information for? And as you mentioned, we can do you know, MVC, Web API, whatever it might be. But when we translate to that to the client, 
we start thinking about well, what frameworks can we start collecting information from, it, it opens up a whole new world of possibilities. Sure. So in the case of CatJS, we can start collecting, we could show you in, in the inside of the panel as a normal tab, just the same way as MVC. Knockout you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. What's all the binding information that's currently being wired up? You know, what changes to my data are happening in real time? And it's that real time scenario with client side plugins that are extremely interesting because server side plugins are more of a snapshot model, whereas your client side plugins are more of a real time thing. Uh, like if you're using Backbone, you're wanting to see, well, what views are being wired up and how how's the routing uh, being processed and all this sort of stuff. Um, and we've got the ability to be able to get in there and it's much easier with JavaScript to be able to do the sort of proxying or um, whatever techniques we need to use to get in there to be able to start pulling out this logical framework information to be able to conceptually show it. Because I remember someone saying, well, can't I just use my JavaScript console? And the problem is, is if you're new to uh, Knockout, yes, you can, you've got a JavaScript console, but what would you start typing in to try and be able to pull out, you know, um, your binding information or whatever else to try and, you know, see what's there. And so that, that's where we feel is that we can add a lot of value. Just popping the right things up. What about general error capture on the browser? Um, so we can tap into anything that the browser exposes or, you know, uh, JavaScript allows us to get access to. Um, would be able to do. So we've had people talk about, you know, well, could you um, also capture console.log and show that in the panel? And that's where it's like, well, I'm, I'm not sure how much value that adds, but definitely inside of a framework context, um, you know, if the framework threw some sort of error, we can show you that, hey, look, as the route was trying to be parsed, this is the problem that occurred rather than just some anonymous, you know, um, JavaScript error uh, in the console that you can't, don't really have much idea of in what context did this error get thrown. Object not found. That's it. <laughs> and that's all you get. <laughs> Enjoy. That's it. And th that's what we'd be able to come in and actually say to you, hey, look, instead of just the object not found, it would actually be, hey, look, when we were trying to find a route, we right. failed to find it. And as a consequence, you know, the framework through this exception, but this is why, and this is exactly where. Yeah, you're basically keeping track of this flow, this timeline of where we are when the error occurs, it gives it a lot more context. <laughs> That's it. Because we're sitting inside of those frameworks, uh, we can gather all of this context and be able to pull it together to paint the story uh, that as a developer is really key to being able to try and understand what's going on. It almost seems like it's an overwhelming amount of information. I mean, it's got to be tricky to visualize this in a way that people can make sense of it. Yeah, and I think that's where we've really tried to break it. When, whenever we sit down and think about developing a glimpse feature and what information we're showing, a really powerful analogy that we, we use for ourselves is that, you know, 10,000 foot versus one foot view. When we, when we come to a new framework, it's like, okay, if a developer just wants to see at the 10,000 foot view, what's going on? What's the simplest information we can show? What's the overall information that we can show uh, to summarize all of this? And then it's like breaking down to the 8,000 foot view, the 5,000 foot view. And fairly naturally, when we look at a framework like Backbone or Web API or MVC or something like that, the 10,000 foot view is like an aggregate of everything that's going on. 
and that might just show up in like a little dashboard or a little, little widget or something like that. Then as you step down, that might be, you know, the more of the details and it would break up the verticals that make up that framework, i.e. routing versus view engines versus whatever else and stepping down even further. So that's what we use to for ourselves to try and make sure that, you know, developer doesn't get information overload. And so this all pops up as sort of the, at the bottom of the page as a set of tabs. Exactly. And, and Glimpse itself is extremely configurable. So you can turn tabs on and off based on whether or not you're using that feature of the framework. And, and, and tabs are an extensibility point. So if, if you're using RavenDB, for example, which Anthony and I do not create a plugin for, you can download one from the community or create one yourself for your own application's data set. So maybe a, a shopping cart or some authentication token or something like that that has meaning for your application. You can create a plugin specific for that. Um, so, so tabs, you know, kind of come and go as, as you need them to via configuration. And largely based on what you're actually using in your app. Uh, and I'm just looking at the package set. You guys have been busy. So it depends on what you're looking at. So there's about 30 Glimpse packages out in the wild. Anthony and I ship about five of those. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So, so, and this is kind of one of the great things about Glimpse. And one of the things that we're really pleased with is when we released Glimpse, uh, it's almost about two years ago, we released it at the Open Source Fest at Mix uh, 2011. Uh, we, we started with an extensibility model, uh, in mind. And, uh, we were kind of inspired by the way that jQuery kind of blew up with their extensibility model. And so, like I said, about 25 of those 30, uh, plugin packs were created by third parties, uh, just contributors from all over the world. We've got to meet, uh, some great people, uh, doing that, that work. Uh, the core team, Anthony and I shipped support for MVC two, three, and four web forms. And within the next day or two, we'll be supporting EF 4.3, 5, and 6, uh, as well as just raw ADO. Uh, that's one of those scenarios where you'll have to change your code a little bit potentially uh, for us to hook in. But but yes, we've been very busy. And we've been very fortunate because about nine months ago, we were contacted by Redgate Software over in Cambridge, England. And yeah. they, you know, they, they kind of called us up and said, hey, we love Glimpse, but we wish we, we would see more happening with it. And so Anthony and I explained our situation. You know, we, we were both full-time consultants. We were feeding our families. And we said, you know, we only have nights and weekends to work on this. And they, and they, they basically came back and said, well, here, how about we sponsor you guys? We'd love to be more involved with the community. We'd love to help you out. And so now you get to work on it 40 hours a week. And so for the last nine months, we've really been accelerating our, our pace and progress because of their generous donation. That's fantastic. I was going to ask you about what their, uh, you know, what their contribution was. That, that, that's a great story about a company that is has an interest just saying, we're going to support this project. Go to it. I love it. Yeah, we love it too. We, we're extremely grateful for them, uh, for all that they do. And even more than just giving us time, they've helped us out. They brought their design team in and their, their technical editing team to kind of look at our docs and tell us how horrible we were. And the design <laughs> team is, is slowly making updates to the website and kind of really helping us out. So it's more than just like, let Nick and Anthony run. We're really working with them uh, uh, as a team and their contributors, uh, just like anybody, anybody else is contributing, but they're, they're doing quite a bit. Fantastic. Hey, Richard, you know what time it is? Ah, it must be that happy time again. Yeah, it's time to uh, wind my spot watch. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's time to give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. 
But before we do that, I need to tell you that this segment is sponsored by Telerik, makers of Kendo UI, which is everything you need to build HTML5 and JavaScript sites and mobile apps. And now Kendo UI comes with server-side wrappers for ASP.NET MVC. You'll be able to produce awesome HTML5 apps powered by Kendo UI without being forced, forced, to write JavaScript. (laughs) Simply program on the server and the Kendo UI wrappers will handle the HTML and JavaScript. You'll have fun and your boss will be amazed. Visit the official Kendo UI website at kendoui.com slash D-O-T-N-E-T to find out more about Kendo UI or download the free 30-day trial with full support. And when you're there, tell them .NET Rocks sent you and that you love them sponsoring our show. Absolutely. We couldn't do it without them. Today's winner is Graham Turk. Ah, congratulations, Graham. Golf clap for you, Golf sir. Golf clap for Graham. If you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and sign up for the fan club. We have thousands of members, and uh, we want you to. We give away something every show. Every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member. And uh, we'd like to ask our guests, if you had five grand guys, Anthony, Nick, what would you buy? Toys. Anthony. Ooh, great question. Uh, I'm really into automation at the moment. Um, so like automating the home and uh, various bits and pieces like that. And uh, I've come across this thing called smart things. And I think I'd go out and buy one of those and um, start wiring up stuff around the house. I don't think they're compatible with teenagers. Smart things. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I would like a teenager remote control, but they haven't invented one of those yet. No, I, I don't think they say on their website uh, they're a Kickstarter, and I don't think uh, they <laughs> said um, that they'd help you with those. So do smart things sort of integrate with um, a standard control panel, uh, automation panel? Yeah, I think so. So part of their value add is um, like the UI experience around uh, orchestrating uh, the workflow of how you can turn on different things. And they've also got like circuit boards that um, can uh, tap in or make a device available um, uh, to the system. And so I've been thinking, I do a lot of vegetable gardening and stuff like that. Uh And I've been thinking about trying to get a moisture sensors into the ground to control turning when when the soil actually needs the water, uh, turning on uh, the, um, uh, the soaker hose so that it can actually go through. So I'll actually be sensitive to how much rain the area has and all this sort of stuff. Love it. And uh, I've actually just been, the problem I've had is not having a central place I could actually manage that all through. I could create something, but I didn't really want to. And so, yeah, that's what's uh, turning me on at the moment. Smart things. Love it. Yeah, I was Mm. part of the Kickstarter. I'm I'm a big fan. I think it's just a set of sensors and a set of interfaces, uh, iPhone uh, interface. It's really quite cool stuff and quite reasonably priced. For five grand, you would have a huge pile of smart things. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so I figure I can do all my lights, all my, you know, PowerPoints and have it all automated up and uh, all that sort of stuff. So, yeah. Their occupancy sensor is the one that fascinates me the most. It's really hard to figure out if someone's in a room. Yeah. You said there are circuit boards that you can connect to standard appliances that hook them into the system. Does that involve taking those things apart and getting out a solder gun? Yeah, I get in that case, I guess it would. Um, because like, let's say in the case of a moisture sensor, uh, you'd need to be able to tap into how it's reporting, mm. um, you know, to whatever, um, what the current, uh, levels, the moisture levels are. 
Um, so once you've gotten around that, and that's why I got myself, uh, you know, uh, an electrical engineering uh, book for dummies. Ah. So I can try and start figuring <laughs> some of that stuff out. Oh, man. Um, well, but, yeah. It, and there is an Arduino engine underlying it all, too. So it will can be programmed in, mm. in .NET. Yeah, which I thought was pretty cool. So, so yeah, that's what that's what's um, that's what I'm looking at recently. How about you, Nick? Yeah, I, I was actually prepared for this question, Carl. I was thinking about it, and my gut reaction was 3D printer, and I thought that's just kind of too standard. And I really thought <laughs> about what I would want to do with that money, and I would want to geek out my kitchen. So I wow. already already took the plunge, and I got myself an immersion circulator last year, which is like a, a water bath for doing sous vide cooking for sous vide, yeah. But I think that I would get a chamber vacuum sealer and an anti-griddle, which mm. is the opposite of a griddle, which yeah, a griddle is cold. very hot surface for cooking food. This is ultra cold surface for freezing food very quickly and very precisely. Are you an Alton Brown aficionado? I love me some Alton Brown, yes. Awesome. And you're, and you're right. A, a really good quality uh, scientific uh, vacuum pump is expensive. They're about two grand. They are. They, they are. Do, and, they an you awesome know, job. with, with the food saver vacuum sealers, you know, kind of the, the, the average price ones you can pick up at your at bed, bath and beyond or whatever home supply store you go to, you can't have marinades or liquids in when you seal because it just sucks all the liquid out. So yeah. you really need a chamber vacuum sealer to kind of get around those kinds of issues. Uh, and speaking of Kickstarter, there is a, uh, a circulation immersion pump on Kickstarter called Nomiku. Which gets the price down to about three hundred bucks. I saw that one. It, it, I when I bought mine, that one was not ready to go yet. So yeah, I went with the standard poly science one. Yeah, which is uh, quite a bit more. She just a little bit, yeah. But boy, oh boy, does it make nice steak! It, you know, it really does. I'm I'm going to be putting <laughs> one in tonight and letting it run for about forty eight hours. A nice skirt steak for some friends this weekend. I'm looking forward to it. It's awesome. Good gadgets, guys. Nice one. You guys are great. You know, you should come and do every show when we ask that question, <laughs> because normally we get people, you know, especially I find the academics, they're kind of like, oh, gee, I don't know what I would get. I don't, I don't know. You know, there's always a standard thing you can think of. It's like, how about a vacation? You know, what is this vacation <laughs> you speak of? <laughs> oh, well, uh, a trip it's to interesting. See the, um, the computer history museum, which probably wouldn't cost five grand given that I live in the United States, but that's that's really worth it as well if you haven't been to the computer history museum. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's talk some more glimpse. Where should we go now, guys? Let's do it. Oh, so extensibility model is probably a good thing to talk about how how people can extend it. Yeah, uh, let's should, do that. We should cover that. Um, cover how to get more information. That kind of stuff that probably um, comes later, I guess. All right, well, uh, and let's probably, go there. Um, the future of where we're heading and stuff like that. Yep, those will be our last questions. All right, here we Perfect. go. I'll, I'll give you a seg. All right, guys. So you have these plugins. What does the extensibility model look like? So there's two sets of extensibility models. There's an extensibility model on the server, which is the one that's been most utilized. About uh, 24 of those 25 packages or so that we mentioned up on NuGet are server-side extensibility. Mm -hmm. And so the way that it works is, is quite simple. You implement an interface that we call iTab. And that interface has one property on it, a getter, and it has one method on it. So the getter returns a string, which will be the name of the tab. So you'd have something like we have one called routes. And then the method is called get data. And all you need to do for that is return an object. And we take that object graph and we serialize it to JSON. And we send that JSON down to the client for rendering. 
Now, the rendering engine on the client is pretty smart. It will take a look at the shape of the data that you send down. So if it's a collection of objects, we'll know to make a table and we'll be able to pick out what the headers for that table should be. If it's just a single solitary object, we'll use the property names as keys and then obviously show the values. So we'll render kind of a, a, a table-based layout very easily for you. You don't need to know any JavaScript. And to register your tab interface, all you need to do is make sure that it's a public class. That's it. We use a mechanism very similar to MEF, the Manage Extensibility Framework, to find that implementation at runtime and pull it in and use it. So literally in about 10 lines of code, you can be up and running with a with a simple plugin that on the server side. Awesome. Wow. Thank you very much. We really did try. The, the challenge here is having the smarts to understand a given framework or library well enough to know what to grab to put into that stream. We did try very hard to make it as easy as possible to expose your data. Uh, as Nick said, just down to the point of return an object and you'll see it show up. It's that simple. Um, and as you said, it's, it's more about trying to figure out, well, which data do I want to show? How can I intelligently show it? At what level does this data sit? Um, and where do I go from there? Um, and usually, um, when people are mucking around, they're trying to, you know, get information from within their app or, uh, as mentioned earlier, from a shopping cart or something like that uh, to help provide context of stuff going on around them. Yes, yeah, so just like what's in the shopping cart or what's currently bound to the object, like those sorts of things. Just got to know what to visualize so we can have some chance of fixing this. Of course, if you're in the midst of actually developing and you've got a library that's misbehaving on you, you probably know exactly what you're looking for. Yeah, exactly. If, if you're that developer who kind of understands all the internals of your framework, then it would be really easy for you to write that Glimpse plugin. And what we find is that there's there's a couple of types of users that we, we constantly hear from who are using Glimpse. And so we, we kind of categorize them uh, when we're talking to each other. So we have our learners, which are people who are new to a given framework. And what we're hearing from from the, the learners when they come and talk to us about Glimpse is they're looking at something like the routes tab or the model binding tab that's showing them step by step the operations that are happening on a given HTTP request. And that really makes the framework click to them. And now they understand where they need to go and change something. It's a lot easier than reading a bunch of documentation and it's showing you your application's data and your configuration. So you're not using some generic sample application or some you know d- dummy sample or example that you might find on MSDN. So those are the learners. We also find that a lot of people who use Glimpse are people who are having problems. So a route, we use route a lot because that's our most popular tab uh, when, we, when we talk about Glimpse. So a route won't match and they don't understand why. And so they'll be able to look at Glimpse and we'll show them that it's because some route constraint didn't pass and we can point that out. Um, or a request wasn't responded to the way that they thought it should be. And uh, our request tab will show the request as it was received by the server which is different than what Firebug or the F12 tools will show you. That shows the request as it was sent by the client. So who knows what proxies mucked with things in between. And so we, we kind of help help out in that scenario. So that's the learners and that's the people who have problems. And then we have a third one, which is kind of new and emerging. And we're starting to hear from these people more and more, which are the people who are just monitoring applications. And they want to see things as they 
as they run live. And so we're doing some little things now to help them get to key data really quickly. It's uh, just so that they can, they can visualize and understand if their application is, is starting to, to fall over or if it's starting to, or if it's getting better as more and more requests come in. That's sort of like the ultimate uh, control freak activity, isn't it? Sitting behind a, you know, huge array of screens watching people using your website. It's just kind of very creepy. I think the other type of person that we're trying to help uh, that's in that same vein is the person who doesn't fit into either of the the camps uh, that, that we mentioned. So they're not a learner, uh, they don't currently have a problem, um, but they're just doing normal development on their site. And so it's kind of like, what information can we show them? You know, we don't want to have to get them to have to open up the full glimpse experience and clicking through tabs to try and understand, right. well, how many SQL requests did I make or whatever else. So we're looking at, um, you know, into the future, well, what can we do to surface this information? So it's right at your fingertips. As, so just as you're navigating around your website, it'll be there in the background and it'll tell you when there's something that you should know about, uh, i.e., you know, SQL requests were, were got way out of hand or, you know, the, um, you know, some engine got into a loop that it probably shouldn't have been. Uh, and it's, again, it's that framework context that, you know, whoever's creating the plugin in the first place kind of knows how it should be operating and kind of can tell you when, hey, look, this doesn't quite look right the way that we know things that should be put together. So, Carl. Yeah, Richard. You ever embed Excel into an application? Ugh. You know, that's right up there with sticking ice picks in my ears. Nice. Because your end users have to have the right version of Office and all that stuff. Yeah. And it has that extra layer of dependency. What I want is just a way to take all that Excel goodness and plop it right into my .NET application. Well, you reminded me of Farpoint Spread from the old days. Yeah, 20 years ago I used Farpoint Spread. But now, of course, it's Component1Spread.net. And now, you know, they have this version that's both for ASP.net and for Windows Forms in one package. Nice. Yeah, it's two different controls, obviously, but it's in one package, so... You bought one, you bought the other. Right. Spread.net from Component 1. Smarter components for smarter developers. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a, as a performance tuner, I'd love to know where I'm spending my time. You know, I have, I have waterfall tools that'll show me yeah, took that this much time to make the request, this much time to actually compute on the server. First byte arrived here. It gives me a pretty good client side breakdown, but I don't get any visibility beyond that of actually what happened in the execution path on the server and what happened in the execution path on the on the browser. Yep, exactly. That's one of the one of the beautiful things about Glimpse. So we we generate that ex exact same waterfall chart that you're used to seeing on the client, but we're showing you everything that's happening on the server. So all of your action filters that ran, your action method, your action result, all the SQL queries that ran if you're using uh, a supported SQL uh, data access technology, we'll show you how long each of those steps took. So you get a holistic view of everything that happened on the server. And here's what's really cool with Glimpse. Because our infrastructure sits on the server and our client sits in the browser, we can actually start to merge these two worlds together. So right now, we, we show you from the moment the server received the first bytes of the request and all of the processing. But we can also use the HTML5 web navigation timing APIs to extend that timeline to show you all the client-side information. So we can show you how long it took to resolve DNS, for example, 
before the request even made it to the server. And so now we're talking about a complete waterfall chart from the moment a hyperlink was clicked to the moment the last byte was received in the client and everything that happened in between mm. across all of the boundaries. So we, we think that that's really powerful for, for a guy like you, Richard. If, especially for a guy like Richard, but for anybody. Definitely. Yeah, you just, you got to know that some, you'll be certain requests that, that have a spin, right? And I, I, I could blame routing for this, where you get a bad set of routes and it wastes a bunch of time and it's not consistent when that happens. So just being able to reveal that in detail, I think is pretty big. Well, mm-hmm. you guys keep going back to routes over and over again. Is that where you had problems in development? So when we started building Glimpse, like I said, we were both consultants. And so I spent a lot of time dealing with customer developers and even developers on my own team who are new to NVC. And it seemed like that was what I kept on going back to and explaining to developers how routing works and building out little tests for them to show all the use cases of where things would break down. Right. Model binding was another big one where we had this problem. You also heard us mention uh, the request tab. Uh, that came from a problem that I had where I actually had a proxy that was changing some of the, the HTTP headers that we were counting on. And I had no way of knowing what IIS actually received. So most of the tabs have come from either direct feedback from users or from our own personal experiences over the last you know 10 years of web development. Nice. Yeah. And I, I also appreciate the session object that we lose track of just how much crap gets stuffed in there sometimes. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. exactly. I, I, that was, um, for me, that, that tab came to mind when I was listening to an old show that you guys are doing and you mm. were talking about Strange Loop, uh, Richard, and some of the stuff that you guys were doing to keep track of session and make sure that you were keeping session down for performance yeah. reasons. Yeah, just knowing how many bytes were in your session object is harder than you think. Unfortunately, yes. And I, and I don't know how far you guys go on this, but especially when you get up in the, in the later versions past ASP.NET 2.0, figuring out what actually got deserialized and what didn't, because it doesn't have to deserialize the whole object. It'll only deserialize what gets used. And if you don't know, like you get a same weird thing. You stuffed a table table in there and it didn't hurt you for the longest time because you hit all these different pages and it didn't use it. And the moment it used it and actually had to deserialize it, then it was a big deal. Knowing when that happened is really tough to figure out. Yeah, it certainly is. And we think that we have some more work that we can do with session and all of web forms features in general. And so we're looking to in the future, get to begin to push into some of that stuff and, and get into those finer green details than what we have right now. A great example of that is uh, view state, for instance, mm-hmm. we can start showing people, you know, how big the view state is that they've got on an individual page. And again, I think it comes down to that, you know, a summary context that we can provide people because you may not know that you have a problem with view state. So you, you don't think you have a problem and you're not learning, but just telling you as you're navigating around that this is how big a view state is for different pages. So that you can actually then go in and start investigating it or you set a hard limit that, you know, view state shouldn't be more than, you know, 100K or, you know, whatever internal limit you want to have. And so, yeah, that sort of cool stuff we've only started scratching the surface on the fact that you don't think you have a view state problem is indicative of the fact that you have a view state problem that's it yeah i had a customer get to a whole one and a half megabytes of view state yeah and it and you know oddly enough the site worked fine internally but as soon as you went on the internet it had a few problems isn't that funny strange hmm what do you know what do you know (laughs) guys where are you going to take this in the future um, okay, so if looking forward into the future, uh, we're really starting to think about uh, this third use case that we've kind of mentioned, this third type of person. 
uh, i.e. you know the person who's not learning and they don't currently have a problem and what can we display for them uh, we've gone as far as we've got some prototypes of what we think that could look like and um, you know in terms of trying to visualize what we're thinking about at the moment glimpse when it's minimized is just uh, the square at the bottom right hand corner of your page we're kind of thinking, well, what happens if we were to extend that out so it's more of a long rectangle and we can fit, you know, heads up information in there? And we're actually calling that HUD heads up display where we could put bits and pieces of information. Uh, at the moment, it's just a question of how much information do we put in there or how little information because we don't want to give people information overload. Um, on top of that, we're also thinking about alerting. So, you know, what alerts can uh, would make conceptually make sense to put into that. Um, so that's one piece that we've got that's coming up. Uh, another big piece uh, is the UI refresh that's coming around the corner. Um, we feel as if we can do a better job and make something that feels uh, a little bit more um, uh, beautiful. And so that's coming around the corner. Uh, as Nick mentioned earlier, we've got support for EF uh, 4, 3, 5, and 6, hopefully coming out by the end of the week, uh, de hopefully definitely by the time this podcast goes live. Um, and then beyond that, uh, we're kind of looking at uh, other frameworks like Web API and uh, bits and pieces like this. But uh, certainly, HUD, HUD is, represents a big piece of work for us. And getting Entity Framework out is uh, really, we've, we've been waiting for that for a long time. You talked about um, you know information overload at the browser. Do you have uh, UI like gauges and dials, dashboard style UI that you can hook up in there? Um, not exactly, but we, we've got something uh, that's kind of close and kind of works very similar. So we've got little like bike, like little charts and little things uh, that'll come in uh, and just, you know, showing other numbers that are bigger than, uh, you know, the more important numbers, showing them bigger than smaller numbers and you know, stuff like this. We're starting to look at like little bar graphs. And so V1 will probably or the initial drop of HUD uh, will probably be fairly lightweight. And then we'll see what we get feedback on. And that's the advantage of being an open source project is that we can get stuff out there very, very quickly um, and uh, try and get feedback on it sooner rather than later. We don't have to wait, um, you know, for it to be 100%, you know, what we envision the final product to be. We can kind of put it out there, get feedback, do another release two weeks later, et cetera, et cetera. Do you have any hardcore contributors besides yourselves out there just saying, I want to, I got some free time and I want to help? We do. We have about three or four contributors that are pretty constant. And then we've had another dozen to 15 or so who have done kind of drive-by commits or three or four or five commits. And that was kind of the end of it. My, my favorite committer story was around our, our the first version of our documentation. Uh, this is about a year and a half ago. We had a, and, and, you know, documentation is always kind of the the worst and last thing anybody wants to do in an open source project. Yep. We had a gentleman contact us and said, Hey, I, I, I love Glimpse and the, you guys need documentation. I'm like, yes, we agree. Do you want to do it? We take pull requests. He's like, yes, I would love to. I'm, I'm German and I'm practicing my English uh, as long as you don't mind. We're like, yeah, have a crack at it. Never thinking we'd hear anything from him again. Wow. Two weeks later, he turned in a 27 page user manual and perfect English, much wow. better English than I would use as a native speaker. Ah, so we, we were awesome. really happy with that contribution. Awesome. That's hilarious. Yeah. What a great idea. Yeah. It was, oh, it was perfect. 
We've had some core contributors, uh, a couple of guys in particular that spring to my mind are, are Stephen Lowers and Christopher All, who have both created their own plugins as well as contributed directly to the core framework uh, and various other people. It's great stuff. Yeah. So and if I want to use this on all of my users without the client side component, without the people seeing stuff in the browser, uh, I mean, does that really exist yet or am I painting new features here? That is available as of Glimpse 1.0, which came out about a month ago. Okay. So the way that you would do that is very similar to the way that I described you create a tab. So we have an interface that you have to implement. Uh, that interface is called iRuntimePolicy. I believe it has one method on it. And in that method, you are passed in a context, which will include the HTTP context for ASP.NET. And you can inspect that and do whatever you want to. So you can check to see if the user is in the developers group, for example. Right. And if mm. they are in the developers group, you can tell Glimpse that it is allowed to write the client to the HTTP response stream. But if they're not a developer, you can tell Glimpse that all Glimpse is allowed to do is persist the results and the persistence store, but it's not allowed to change anything on the response stream. Nice. And so that okay. feature is, is up and running just by implementing that class. And once again, we'll use our meth-like functionality to find that class and pull it in and it'll automatically be up and running for you. And then it's up to us to, to where do we want to persist that? Do we just want to log it? Do we want to build a console so that you can have sort of an overall view of what's going on? There's lots of choices there at this point. Yep. Yep. And like I said, we, we ship with an implementation that is in memory, but implement an interface. That interface probably has about four or five methods on it and you can store it wherever you need to. Now, what about the round trip? Is that intercept at the response point where it's about to go to the browser? So you have all the server data, but you haven't done any client stuff yet? So you actually get to pick when that policy runs. Okay. Because of the way that ASP.NET is architected, there are certain things that you won't know about about a given request response pair until after the handler has run. So, for example, you don't know what the response code is or what the... Uh, media type is going to be until afterwards. So you can choose something that's that's user-based, like I was talking about with a developer group. You can run that right at the very beginning of the request. And as soon as we know that you're not going to be sending down a response or you're just turning Glimpse off entirely, Glimpse gets out of the way for performance reasons. Right. So you get to pick when that runs. Yeah, but I, and I kind of want to collect the client-side results as well and bring it back to my back end. So, you know, being able to intercept that complete set of data. In that scenario, we've definitely talked about it and been looking at, you know, how can we get this client-side information back to the server? Right. Um, it's definitely high on our priority list, uh, but and that's something we can ha handle at a platform level. So anyone who's developing a client-side plugin, you know, could automatically take, take advantage of this. Uh, but it's definitely something on our roadmap and something that we want to be able to associate with here's the server data for a given, you know, request and here's the client side information that happened uh, along with that. Yeah, I would think at the intercept point of the when you're about to go down on the response, that same spot you were talking about where you decide whether you're going to send or not, instead of sending go ahead and render the tab, it's go ahead and collect the data and send it back with this token or send it back this way. And then it does its client side exactly. render, fires it back and you're able to join the two sets together. You've got in one. Yeah. Uh-oh, now I'm in trouble. Now yeah. I have to be a contributor. That's right. <laughs> Gentlemen, <laughs> Glimpse is brilliant. There's so many great things out there in so little time. Aren't you glad we do two shows a week? No kidding. <laughs> That's it. Thank you very much, Anthony and Nick. 
Thanks no for problem. having us. Thank you guys for having us. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. And hey, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Plop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 